what, do, you ever, do you ever drive somewhere and then you find after a little while that you've, you've ended up going in the wrong direction because you've been on autopilot? Does anybody else do this? Yeah? Okay. All, all the time, yeah? And you just like, where, where am I? <laughs> what am I doing? Um, I think it's actually possible sometimes for us to do that in, in our worshiping life and in our singing life. And um, it's why, uh, well, one of the reasons, I guess, why the band and the worship team are so good to us that they introduce new songs, because you can't do it so easily with new songs, can you? You have to read the words and kind of figure out where you're going with it and so on. Sometimes, when the songs that we know really well, that we're really familiar with, we almost go into a little bit of autopilot. Um, there's some comfort and warmth in them, but, but we go into autopilot. Maybe that, that song that we've just sang is a bit like that for you. Um, I don't, have we sung it 10,000 times? We, we might have done by now. It's got to be heading in that direction, hasn't it? Um, it's a bit of a modern classic, so that's probably why. That last verse, it gets me every time. For a little while, it was my lad's favorite song. And so when I'd be putting him to bed, we'd sing that last verse. And, um, and, and my little lad, he's young, obviously, and he's full of energy and life. But we would sing together, and on that day when my strength is failing... And it would never cease to really kind of just bring me up short. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, I think if, when you get a bit older, you do think about, like, you know, I don't know. I'm still pretty young. I don't, I don't want to say death. It just seems a little abrupt. Um, but that's why I'm driving. I, I know I'm still pretty young, but I'm moving into, probably by all statistical likelihood, the second half of my life. Um, I know. Um, my most young and vigorous days are behind me, although I am growing in, in wisdom and, and maturity. And don't, don't laugh. Um, I really, I, we sing these words, and um, on that day when my strength is failing, and my little boy singing it without really any understanding of what he's singing, perhaps. I mean, he knows Jesus loves him, of course, but do you ever think about that? Do you think about your final day? Do you think about it? And chances are you won't know it's your final day. You may not even know it's your final day on your final day. But do you think about it? I don't know. I find myself thinking about it in two minds. Um, there's, a, there's a part of me, I don't know whether it's quite a half of me yet, but it's kind of thinking, actually, I, I, would, I would like to get there quite soon. And you might say, well, Pastor Gray, what a terrible thing to say. Don't worry, I have my orders from Erin. I'm not allowed to pass away before her. Um, she's told me, and I'm an obedient husband, so I'm going to do as I'm told. Um, she, she wants to go to Jesus first and not have to worry about thinking about me. But, um, but there's a part of me that, that eagerly longs the end of this age. Um, eagerly. Um, and I suppose what I'm longing is not just that, you know, for the end of my time here on this earth. Although, you know, there are compensations, aren't there, being, to, being translated into glory. Um, I'm longing for the coming of the kingdom. I'm longing for Jesus. Is there anybody else with me? And, and I suppose what I'm saying is when we sing these words, you might have sung them 10,000 times. But just take a moment, and, and if, you, if you need to, just stop singing for a little bit. The band won't mind, as long as it's just for a little bit. Don't stop singing altogether, but just think about these words and, and, and allow perhaps a longing for Christ to come within you. Could you do that? Don't worship on autopilot. Long for Jesus. Long for Jesus. And so an increasing proportion of me is like, oh, Jesus, Let's get to the end of this, shall we? <laughs> and let's get into what's coming. I, I heard, um, well, a far better preacher than me by the name of John MacArthur talk about his longing for the coming of the kingdom on one occasion. And, and somebody asked him, they asked him, what is it that you're looking forward to um, in the kingdom to come, in heaven or the presence of Jesus? And he says, you know what, it's not so much the beauty of it and all the, the vivid descriptions of the, the jeweled splendor and the streets paved with gold and all these kinds of things that I'm looking forward to. He said, the thing that I'm looking forward to the most is the absence of sin. That's a pretty, um, I would say that's a pretty wise thing to say. And you know, he, he then said, I'm just so tired of sin. Anyone else? <laughs> and... 
you know, in, in our Christian walk, um, I think the longing for Christ, it comes in a couple of ways, doesn't it? The longing for Christ comes in the revelation of his beauty. And the more and more we kind of meditate and dwell upon who he is and how beautiful he is and how lovely toward us, then the more we long for him. But the longing for the coming of, of Christ comes also in, in the, I guess, there's, there's something of a weariness in the fight against sin, isn't there? And it's not to say I'm going to give up, don't worry. <laughs> and truthfully, I'm not necessarily the one who wins the victory anyway. It's Christ in me that's the hope of glory. And it's the Spirit of God that is sanctifying me according to his purposes. But I long for a day when there is no more sin. Anyone else? I long for a day when, when, when you know, resurrected, um, we're going to have bodies like unto his glorious body. That sounds pretty fantastic. But I'm longing for the day when my character um, is no holds barred like Jesus. Does anybody else want that? You know, I look at myself and I, when I consider the nature of my soul and when I consider the nature of my devotion and when I consider um, the, the, you know, the, the, the pressing on of my life into the things of Christ, um, sometimes I'm, I'm, I, you know, and Jesus is never disappointed in me because he's, he's more gracious with me than I am with myself. But sometimes I get a little disappointed with myself. And um, there's a part of me that's a bit like, please come, Lord Jesus. Because as much as you, I know you are making me more and more into your likeness. And, you know, there's a, it's no accident, is it, that the fruit of the Spirit includes long-suffering. Long-suffering. I think I mentioned it before, but one of my nephews in a, a beautiful way, was listing the fruits of the Spirit. And I was really impressed that he knew them. Um, but we got, as we were listing them back and forth between us, we got to long-suffering. But he, he had got the sense of it, but he hadn't quite got the word of it. So as we were going through the fruit of the Spirit, he said to me, isn't the one that's called hard pain? And, uh, and I was like, I'm not familiar with it, but I, I think I know where you're going with this. Um, hard pain. Maybe you think he's onto something there. It, 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 Micah, he's, he's, he's a pretty canny chap, isn't he? Um, hard pain. There is something about that of our journeying with Christ, isn't there? Long suffering. You know, a, a very wise Christian leader described the nature of discipleship like this. He said, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Yeah? A long obedience in the same direction. If Jesus tarries, if I have 40 more years on this earth, that'll be a pretty long obedience. My parents led me into uh, the way of salvation when I was just five years old. You know, if I hang around here for a while, that's going to be a pretty long obedience. And it's not to say that I've been perfect in that regard, hardly so. I mean, those of you who've grown up in the faith, you'll know that repeatedly you get challenged with the kingdom of this world and the, and the desires of your own flesh. And you have to choose Jesus over and over and over and over again. And it doesn't really stop when you're kind of grown up in the natural because you've got to continue growing up in the faith. All this is to say, yes, there's a long obedience, but I long for Jesus to come suddenly. I long for Jesus to come suddenly. And I want to hold that out to you, not just because we're trying to embrace the nature of the songs that we sing, but I want to hold that out to you because this is what is commonly referred to as the Christian hope. This is our hope. And the Bible teaches us very clearly that if it is only in this life that we have hope, then we are to be pitied. In fact, more pitied than anyone else on the face of the planet. Because if we are kind of devoting ourselves to the way of Christ, if we are enduring the, as it were, hard pain of the Christian discipleship walk, and yet we only have hope in the now, in the, in the things of the, of the physical or natural world or in the things of this age, then it's pretty pitiable. Hold out before yourself this truth. This is a season. It's a time. And the leaves of this earth will fall. The things of this earth will be pared back to nothing. And then the Bible teaches us in Revelation that everything of this earth is going to pass away. Heaven and earth pass away. The Bible teaches us that the only thing that endures is the word of the Lord. All of this is gone. And then blissfully, wondrously, new creation, a new hope, an absolute wonder. This is um, for us. This is the joy set before us. 
so that we might follow in the way of, of Christ, so that we might endure the cross that he invites us to take up and follow him. We might scorn its shame because doubtless the way of hard pain is shameful according to the nature of this world. But if you have this joy set before you, then you can endure. If you have this joy set before you, then you will be a person of faithful devotion to the way of Christ. And, 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 and though it may get harder as you go onward, doubtless it will also get more joyful. In, in just a little, um, a couple of weeks, not less even, um, from now, I'm going to have the privilege of, um, of giving thanks for the life of Eunice's dad, um, who passed away um, just recently. And... Um, and I'm going to really enjoy it because I led him to faith in Jesus Christ. And there's, there's, really nothing, there's not much better than that, I don't think. Um, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And, and, and he and I, when we talked on occasion, very few occasions, but when we talked on occasion, we talked about um, God as a father making room for children. And this is what Jesus described you know, when he talked about going to his father, he said, you know, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Uh, don't worry, I'm going to come back for you. Um, and we talked about this because that was a little bit of the character of Eunice's dad. He made room for, for kids and, and, uh, and kids that joined his family as the journey went along the way. And we talked about that. What I didn't realize was on one occasion when I was talking with him about how his funeral might go, um, I said, I'll message you some Bible verses that you might have in your funeral and then you can let me know which ones you would like. And um, I messaged him a bunch of Bible verses that occurred to me. But in conversation, I don't know who it was, um, they talked a bit about a Dolly Parton song. Um, any Dolly Parton fans here this evening? Um, do you want to admit? I don't know. Um, but uh, apparently it's a Dolly Parton song that closes out with some words from the Bible and they were telling me a few of them and I'm not entirely au fait with the works of Dolly Parton. Um, but I, when they told me these words, I recognized that they were drawn from Revelation 21. And that blessed picture of hope, of God being with his people and his people being with their God. If you don't know that scripture, go home tonight and read it for yourself. And that blessed hope. And so Eunice this morning, she came to me and she said, um, could we have that passage from Revelation that you messaged my dad about? And I couldn't remember that I had, but I, I looked through the verses and there I saw it. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the future hope. And I want you Christians to keep that future hope in mind. And you're gonna to have to cultivate this because the world in which you live is seeking to snuff out your joy in Christ. It is. And I'm not an all doom and gloom person. I know I might look like it in my face, but I'm really not. Um, I'm quite a jolly so-and-so, if you get to know me. Um, but this world, truth be told, is trying to snuff out the joy that you have in Jesus Christ. It's trying to do that. It's trying to tell you that you're foolish for believing in him. It's trying to tell you that you need to devote yourselves to things that, that, that seem to have substance, that, 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 that glitter in, in, in this world and in its lights. This, this world is trying to, to crush your enjoyment of the way of Christ. But if, if you will actively cultivate this future hope, this passion for the presence of Jesus and everything that he is going to usher in, then you will be a person who can joyfully, gladly embrace the hard pain of the way of discipleship. And it is the way of discipleship that we're going to talk about for the next little bit this evening. Two Sundays ago, um, we began in our evenings a sermon series that we're calling This Is us and we're seeking to give snapshots of what we as a church are all about it might be that you you come to a Sunday or even quite a few Sundays and you see various things happening and various things going on and you might say well the church is about singing or the church is about um, the Bible and well, the church is about friendship and in some senses you you wouldn't be wrong um, but this church has a, a very particular um, understanding of why we are here in the here and now. We have a very particular understanding of the mandate that God has placed upon our lives. 
We have a very particular understanding of the way that Christ's love compels us and the very particular understanding of the commission of Jesus upon our lives. So two Sundays ago, we talked about what it is to be a Pentecostal church. And we talked a little bit about the four-square gospel and, and receiving the, the fullness of the Spirit of God as on the day of Pentecost and how we seek to move in these things. Last Sunday, we talked about disciple-making. And how it is that Jesus commissions us to go into all the world and make disciples. We talked a little bit about how it is that we enter into that way through means of repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. On one occasion, the Bible teaches us that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, then we shall be saved. And it's a distillation of, of, of entrance into the kingdom of God. But that work of repentance and belief is an ongoing work in our lives so that we might not only be people who who have a moment of affirming Jesus but please God a lifetime of affirming Jesus that's what it is to be a disciple to follow hard after him not only do we want to be disciples we want to make disciples see the folks around us those who are far from God those who are in need of him and seek how we can draw people near to Jesus to seek how we can be the body of Christ drawing near to those people. This evening, I want to talk a little bit more in detail about the way of the disciple, to talk a little bit about what a disciple is. I kind of hinted at it just in those last moments. Um, but I wanted to tell you a little story about the great artist Michelangelo, or I think if, if we were really Italian, he'd be Michelangelo, wouldn't he, or something like that. But the great artist of the Renaissance, and, um, and, and, and he was a, well, it, I think he was a bit of a show-off, truth be told. He was quite a flamboyant character, it seems. And, and oftentimes, people would come to see him work, even um, come in great crowds to see him work. And the story goes that on one occasion, he was working on a sculpture, and a crowd gathered around him. And one child in particular was said to be fascinated by the sight of, of as his chisel hit the stone, chips flying away um, and the sound of the mallet hitting the chisel into the stone and so on and so on. This master Michelangelo was shaping a huge block of white marble. Little kids, curious as they are and um, less less unnecessarily polite as they are, snuck up to him and you can imagine yanking on his shirt or something and saying, what are you making? And the legend goes that Michelangelo replied to this little girl and probably with a twinkle in his eye, there's an angel in there and I must set it free. That's a beautiful sense, isn't it? Not that somehow he was, from his imagination and skill, enforcing what was to be sculpted upon the marble, but rather, it's in there. And if only I partner with this stone and, and allow it to kind of flourish and, and so on, then the angel will be set free. I'm looking at your faces. You're not very artistic, are you? You're just looking back at me like, what? <laughs> Come on, use your imagination. And the reason why I share that with you as we get going into thinking about your life of discipleship is because I would suggest to you when, when you come to Jesus, um, we come as something like that great big, I was going to say lump, but you don't want to be described as a lump, do you? Um, we, we come as, as, a, as a, perhaps a, a formless piece. Is that a bit nicer than being called a lump? Um, no, you're not on board, are you? But we come in that way. The beauty of you as a disciple is there, but it's hidden away. And God wants to work upon you. Mallet hitting chisel, chipping away, edges gone, even lumps, chunks, things, things that we thought we needed gone and, and gone for the better, revealing and releasing who you are. As a, a wonderful preacher, John Piper. And, and he talks a little bit about how, how it is, you, you may know, we're made in the image of God. But by nature of sin and, and our rebellion against God and our distance from him, it's as though we're a mirror, which by rights um, is, is, is ordered toward God, 
receiving the beauty of his presence against its surface and ought to be reflecting it into the world. And yet uh, the the sin is is like mud and grime and, and grease covering its surface. When Christ comes to us, he washes it away. He washes away every stain and every, every mark. And suddenly we are who we were made to be. And the bright shining brilliance of Christ comes upon us fully, um, unfettered by our own wickedness and shines into the world. But I don't know about you, but it seems to me that my mirror, um, it could be polished a bit more. Anyone else? Does anybody else think their mirror could be polished a little bit more? Don't leave me on my own. <laughs> it could be, couldn't it? We could reveal yet more of the beauty and the brilliance of God. These images are ways of describing to you a little bit of the nature of discipleship. Now, don't, because of that, think that you ought to get out some Brillo pads or some polish or something and start scouring yourself. Um, we, we very quickly, when we think about uh, the work to be done, in refining our character and making our nature, when we think about the the way of the disciple, we start very readily into the things I must do. And certainly there will be things that you ought to do and that indeed you must do if you want to walk in Christ's way. But I want you to root, as we often say, your doing in your being. I don't think it's by accident that we describe ourselves as human beings and not as human doings. There's an accidental bit of wisdom there. being is, is where everything is rooted. Now, in, in biblical terms, we talk about covenant and kingdom. And we talk about how it is that God has made a promise to us through Jesus Christ, his son. He has promised to us that if we place our faith in him and receive his salvation, then we shall be born again. We shall be set fair for heaven. We shall be in proper relationship with him that is entirely dependent upon his goodness and grace and power. And I don't want you for a moment to start trying to work up your salvation. I don't want you for a moment to start to to act as though if I just do this, then God will love me. I know some, some of us, we probably fall into those kinds of traps. Not so. Rather, God loves us. And he establishes right relationship with us through Jesus Christ if we will surrender ourselves to that. Well, then from that relationship, from that nature of being with God flows our doing. It flows the the way of the disciple. It flows the, the activity of the disciple and how we devote ourselves to the things of God. If you've got a Bible this evening, we're going to just take a very short reading from from Luke's gospel. And um, it's in chapter 6 of Luke's gospel. And um, if you've not got a Bible, they're they're under the chairs, scattered all around. I encourage you to grab one and have a look. Um, In this short passage, and we're going to read from from verses 12 um, through to 19, we see a microcosm of the way of Christ And we're going to recognize that he invites us into that way. It's very simple, but it's very profound. We want to get into the way of Jesus. I'm going to read this passage, Luke 6, verse 12. In these days, he, that is Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. I've mentioned on numerous occasions three things that I would love for us as a church to focus on through this year. Two of them are kingdom breakthrough, the signs and the wonders of the kingdom of God breaking out in our lives. Another one is confident personal witness. But the first one, in fact, is passionate corporate prayer. The way of devoting ourselves as a church to pray. And we read that simple line Jesus went to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. I suspect that is something that is entirely alien to most of us, if not all of us. And it certainly isn't necessarily something that is present in our lives on a regular basis. Let the way of Christ begin to challenge us even as we get going. Next verse. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. There's a different sense here that we have about what it is to be a disciple. There's a a big crowd of people following Jesus in one way or another, 
But from them, Jesus draws to himself the 12, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And every time I read the list of the disciples, I always feel for Judas, the son of James. Anyone else? It's like his name was totally good until the other Judas ruined it. Anyone else? It's terrible. Every time we go to France, and and our lad is called Judah, but the French, they pronounce the word Judas without the S on the end, so it's also Judah. And so every time we have to say it's Judah. No, not that one. The other one. The good one. And um, it's a terrible thing. I feel for poor Judas, the son of James. Let's read on. Jesus has gone to the mountain. He's prayed all night. He's been with his father. Now he comes down the mountain, calls this community of disciples to himself. How does it continue? And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So you're starting to get a sense of there are different levels of those who are wanting to get a little bit of Jesus. There's this 12, this core, this group of family that are close. They've got a specific commission and a specific access to Jesus. There's a wider group of disciples. And, and because they're described as disciples, we know there's something about them that means they follow Jesus. Don't dismiss that. But then there's a huge multitude. Maybe just thinking, this is interesting, or I wonder what this is about. It's not the same thing. Where are you? Where are you? Are you close to Jesus? Are you heeding his call? Do you want to follow him with all devotion? Or are you a multitude of folks who are going to come, listen to a few exciting things, and then go home? Come on, where is your life? Now, um, what happened? These folks came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. This is laudable. It's faith. It's faith. It's a good thing. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him. This is, this is pretty intense, isn't it? A great multitude. Everybody is trying to get a little bit of Jesus. You can feel the crush, the press of it. They sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Oh, my goodness. Does anybody want to be there? <laughs> Does anybody want to be in that moment? Because Jesus heals over and over and over again. But there are some occasions through the Gospels, and look for them, when it seems like, and everyone got healed. And it wasn't just like this one here, or that person there, or so-and-so called out and they were lifted up. It was just like, if you are within a square mile of Jesus, you're getting smacked with the power of God. It's just fantastic, isn't it? Does anybody want those kind of square mile glory experiences? Please, Lord Jesus Christ, this is a fantastic thing. Now, what I want you to see, Um, is there's three dynamics here, three things, and they're they're, they're quite deliberate, I think, in the life of Christ because you can find them in multiple places in the Gospels, but they're very important for us if we want to follow Jesus. What does Jesus do first? He goes up, up, and he goes very literally up the mountain. And over and over again in Scripture, when somebody's going up a mountain, it's, it's, it's like a code or a reference for coming close to God. And Jesus goes up the mountain. Yes, certainly he found solitude there and a singularity of purpose. Uh, but it, it's, that, it's that discipline of being with his Father. It's not the case that Jesus couldn't be with his Father anywhere. You know, at that most pressing moment of need, he's with his father in a garden, isn't he? Garden of Gethsemane. But here he does and he practices in the way of scripture. He goes up the mountain because he's going up to his father. Jesus, time and time and time again, models for us that we must abide in God that we must be ensuring that our lives are rooted in the fundamental reality that God is our God. He goes to his Father. 
Uh, when he prays, what can we imagine he says? Well, we can imagine he talks to God as his father. How can we imagine that? Because on another occasion, his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, when you pray, say, our father. God, Jesus, is going to his father in prayer. He's recognizing that this is the primary and foundational relationship in his life. Now, this is true for Jesus, who is God-made flesh then how much more so do we need to be reminded and encouraged in this way? I want to ask you, is the fundamental dynamic and the the, the foundational and enervating dynamic of your life to be with your Father? Is it to recognize that you're nothing without God, but you're everything with Him? Is Is this what shapes your life? Does it mark your life and move you in the way of Christ? You know, if if you're getting about or trying to get about kingdom business without this primary dynamic, you'll probably find that that you may have some successes. You will fail as often as you succeed. You'll get weary incredibly quickly and, and oftentimes disappointed, even disillusioned. Unless everything that we are and everything that we do is rooted in the love of God who is our Father, the covenant relationship that He has established with us then we're setting ourselves up to at best a partial Christian life and at worst a Christian life that will fail. We go to God first. I recognize just for a moment or two that we all have one Father. There's one God, isn't there? Can we try again? There's one God, isn't there? There is one God and He is the Father of all. And if God is one Father to all who believe and all who trust in Him, That makes us family because we share one father. It reshapes everything else about the way that we live. Every other relationship in our lives, every other way that we go about living is shaped by communion with your father. This is so important for you. Jesus comes down to some disciples. He's not come all the way down the mountain yet. It says later that he came down with disciples to this level place but but it it comes from this place of solitude to some of the disciples and and, but then he called to himself the 12 whom he called apostles now what Jesus here is is practicing is he's practicing what it looks like to live in uh, the family of God he's practicing what becomes for us Christian community Jesus Christ though He is God made flesh. Have we said that a few times tonight? I think we have. Although he comes down the mountain, power comes out of Jesus. It doesn't come out of anybody else. The power here comes out of Jesus, heals everybody in the whole area. You know, do we for a moment think that Jesus couldn't accomplish everything on his own? Of course he could. And when it comes down to the particular work of salvation, there's no one but Jesus who can accomplish the work of the cross. Yet, he still says, models, shows the investment in a core group who become like family to him. He says, you guys, come on, come close. If you read through the Gospels elsewhere, you'll find all the different ways that he calls these, these, these guys to himself. And then as you read through the Gospels, you'll find the different ways that he, he leads these people Jesus Christ is absolutely and completely affirming that we don't do this on our own. And if Jesus didn't do it on his own, come on, do you know better? Do you know better? Are you stronger than him? Are you wiser than him? Are you more powerful than him? Are you more holy and righteous than him? I'm not saying these things to have a go at you. I like you but Jesus is more. And if he says you must be in family to accomplish the work of the kingdom, then you must be in family to accomplish the work of the kingdom. Stop trying to go on your own. Stop coming to uh, Sunday services and then going off to meander your way through the rest of your week. That's not the way Jesus lived. Why do you live like that? I don't think we've not found some secret hidden way. Jesus has made a very plain and open way to us. 
We need one another. And we need one another in the way of Jesus. You see, Jesus, the Bible teaches us, came not to be served, but to serve. And he called these guys to him, not because he thought, oh, this guy can carry my backpack, and, and this guy's a good cook, he can make the food, and, and this guy can like sort the accommodation arrangements. They were pretty useless at a lot of things as the story goes on. Uh, please, they were pretty impressive in a few other ways, but they weren't necessarily the most standout people in all of Galilee or, or Judea at the time. They were pretty ordinary in many ways. Jesus has to serve them way more than they served him. And when it comes to the work of the cross of bringing salvation into their lives, Jesus does that complete. They don't bring anything to it. You and I, we don't bring anything to Jesus to earn our salvation. He gives it to us as a gracious gift. Jesus serves his family. And I want to encourage you in recognizing that you need to be part of Christian community. We need to be part of Christian community so that we can serve one another and love one another in the way of Christ. So he's got this 12 with him. One with the Father. And he's modeling this for this group. And he does so. Read on, read on. He does so over and over again. And it's only at this point that then he goes to the rest of the people. And they've come because they want to hear his teaching, be healed of their diseases. And the scripture makes plain that some of them are going to need unclean spirits. In Luke's words, curing. Well, Luke was a doctor. Uh, other ways of putting it might be casting out. Uh, Jesus Christ establishing his lordship in their, in their vicinity and in their lives as well. They, they've come for these things. And Jesus up with his father in with this community who are going to be absolutely blown away by this. Then goes out to these folks. Doesn't hide away. Doesn't say, oh, I've got my 12. I'm pretty comfy now. These seem like a nice bunch. I'll just focus on them. No, they together go out and it is then when the miraculous starts to break in. It's then that lives start to get changed. I want to commend this to you as the way of the disciple. I want to commend this pattern of Jesus to you as the way we ought to be shaping and fashioning our lives. Up, one Father, forming our understanding of who we are. In Christian community, we have transformed communities in this church. If you're not part of them, why are you not part of one? And then out, going together in the power of the Spirit. For it's the Spirit that enables the work of the gospel. It's the Spirit that is going to dynamically transform lives through us. We go out to a world of need and see what God will do. The Holy Spirit comes upon communities that are formed around the Father. And, and he comes uh, not to kind of cuddle us and make us comfortable. Although... You know, I say that and some of you will instantly be thinking, well, isn't the Holy Spirit described as a comforter? Well, please, just think, who is he being described to? He was being described to people who all bar one of these, um, sorry, of these 12 disciples, you know, one is going to betray Jesus. But all bar one of the others are going to lose their lives before their time for the cause of the gospel. And the other one is going to wind up his years in hard labor. I think Micah was onto something with hard pain, being the fruit of the Spirit. This is not going to be an easy way. And so many of those early apostles and Christians, they're going to be suffering. It's to them that the Holy Spirit is described as a comforter. Now, if you're embracing um, the way of long suffering, if you're at the hard uh, cutting edge of the things of the gospel, then please, you need the comforter to come. I would suggest to you this evening that too few of us are. I think we need something else of the Spirit at work in our lives. Jesus, in, in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, he's baptized by his cousin John, John the Baptist. Good person to be baptized by. It's in his job description, um, it's in his title. John the Baptist and sons. No, he didn't have any sons. Jesus is baptized. It's this wonderful moment of encounter. Again, with who? The Father. Then the Bible says that the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Does anybody like to get driven out of anywhere? 
Does it sound nice? No? Walk into a room with your mates and one of them grabs you and just shoves you out the door. That's not very pleasant, is it? You go to work and, and your boss comes over and says, right, out you go. <clears throat> Wouldn't be very nice, would it? The Holy Spirit drives out people. And, and, and don't misunderstand, it's not because he's unpleasant. It's because he knows what needs to be done. He knows what needs to be done and he drives folks out to where they need to be. And Jesus commissions his disciples to, to go and make disciples. He grants this incredible promise of his presence by means of his spirit. He says, I am with you even to the end of the age. Who is he with? He's with people who are going. You want more of the spirit of God? Well, get going. Get shoved by the spirit and then he'll be with you. Uh, you know, come on. We, we think that the only or the primary mode of the operating of the Spirit is if we, and please, I love singing songs. Don't misread me. But if, if we sing more songs, I don't think that's really true. I don't really think that the Holy Spirit is all about us having times of encounter. Encountering is good. But when we encounter the Spirit, it seems to be the Bible says you encounter the Spirit and then he drives you out. I'm not entirely sure that we've remembered that part. We're like, we want to be with you, Spirit of God. We want to encounter you. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And then the Holy Spirit would drive us out and we sit down. Honest to goodness, it seems these days I've never seen so many people sit down so often in church. We worship and, and everybody sits down all the time. Nobody even raises their arms anymore. I'm starting to rant, aren't I? Not without cause. When did your bodies get so weak? When did your spirits get so weak? When did your passion for the lost get so weak? Maybe it's because we're not with our Father so much. Maybe it's because we're trying to go the way of the disciple on our own. And we get pretty weak pretty quick if we do that. And then it's all too easy to forget that our calling is to go out. And even if we do remember it, then we haven't really got a great deal to offer. Don't for a moment start trying to fix your behavior because you'll fail. Fix your beholding. What do I mean by that? What's well, that upward dynamic again? Unless you are investing considerable time with your father unless you are beholding his beauty and his grace, unless you're getting to grips with his character and his longing for the lost, his joy in finding lumps of marble and releasing the angelic wonder that could be, unless you're with your father beholding him, I tell you, Christian, you're probably not even going to believe what I'm talking about. And I'm not being unnecessarily abrupt with you. What I'm doing is I'm trying to help you to understand how this works. You don't fix your behavior, you fix your beholding. And if you fix your beholding, the one you are beholding will fix your life of belief. He will enable you to, to trust in him and to believe the things of his kingdom and to believe his calling and commissioning upon your life. And, and, and then your belief will fix your behavior. It doesn't come any other way. This is the way of the disciple. This is the way of the disciple. And it's all rooted in love. It's all rooted in love. I read the most beautiful little story about love. And um, you might say this evening, I don't really understand a love like this. I don't love, understand a love that wants to completely change me and then drive me out into the wilderness. <laughs> what kind of love is that? I don't know. Hmm. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Maybe it means that our understanding is wrong. This little story that was a lady um, in the States, this story comes from, and she, um, she had to go to Vermont um, when she wanted to study for her master's degree. 
And, and so to do this, she had to commute several times a week from, from her, her home uh, where she was living in Vermont to the university in, in Burlington. I have no idea where that is, but apparently it was a, a hundred mile journey each way. Coming home late at night, she would always see an old man sitting by the side of her road. He was always there. Even when the temperature was below zero, he was always there if it was stormy. No matter how late she returned, he made no acknowledgement whatsoever as she drove past him. The snow might have settled on his cap or his shoulders, and she remarked on how he might look as though he were just a little gnarled old tree on the side of the road. And she wondered, what on earth is bringing him to that same spot every evening? She thought, maybe, is it a stubborn habit? Is it a private grief? Maybe a He's not all there. Finally, she asked a neighbor of hers. She said, have you ever seen an old man who sits by the road late at night? Oh, yes, said her neighbor, many times. And so she, she, she gently asked the neighbor, is he okay? Does, does he ever go home? The neighbor laughed and said, he's no less okay than you or me. He's all there, if that's what you're asking. And he goes home right after you do, actually. You see, he knows those long journeys you do, and he doesn't like the idea of you driving by yourself out late all alone on these back roads. So every night, he walks out to wait for you. When he sees your taillights disappear around the bend, and he knows you're going to be okay, then he goes home to bed. That's rather lovely, isn't it? It's a lovely story of, of unlooked for and, and misunderstood love. Christians, the love that God wants to lavish upon you, unlooked for, unlooked for, and yet he grants it wonderfully. And the love that God wants to, to, to shower upon you, I suspect we understand a little of it. I think we misunderstand a great deal of it. The Bible says, Christ's love compels us, compels us. It means that we cannot do anything but that which he forces us into by means of his better wisdom, his better nature, and his better will for our lives. God's love for you is such that he will come to you just as you are but he will not leave you just as you are. He will come to you just as you are, but he won't leave you just where you are. He will change you and shape you, and he will compel you and drive you out so that you might be the person that he has made you to be and then indeed do the things that he has called you to do. Those 12 that Jesus called to himself if you were to read their stories of calling, you would find that Jesus invites them with such tenderness and such gracious understanding of their weakness. And they have a journey, and their journey goes like this. Jesus says to the disciple, he says, come and see, just that. It's nothing fancy, it's nothing difficult. It's not even particularly demanding. Come and see. But when they see and they delight in him a little, when they behold, then Jesus says to them, okay, well, how about come and follow? Not everyone does. Those multitude of crowds, most of them they didn't follow. But the 12 did. They followed. Some others they did. Mary, Martha, some others they followed. And then Jesus, he says to them, Okay, this is how it's going to be. You're going to need to come and die. Die to yourself. Die to being Lord of your own life. Die to being master of your own universe. It's come and see, come and follow, come and die. And it's only if a disciple will journey in that way with Jesus that then he commissions us in this. And it's not coming anymore. It's going. For he tells us then, okay, now, Go and tell. Come and see, come and follow.
come and die. Now you can go and tell. It's going up to the Father, in to serve his people and communities of faith, and out, forced by the Spirit, because he knows better than you, into the way of the kingdom. Just bow your heads for a moment. Would you do that? As we know, there's little point in reading the scriptures or considering the way of Jesus unless we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us and change us. And so we often ask, Spirit of God, what are you saying to me? And what would you have me do about it? I'd invite you, ask those questions of God. Are you beholding him? Are you spending time with your father? Is that relationship forming everything? Are you with the saints, the household of faith, the community of believers? Do you live with them and journey with them? Are you accountable to them? Do you enjoy their blessing into your life, their prayers and support? Are you sent out by the Spirit of God. God, would you speak to us in these things? And Lord Jesus Christ, we ask not only that you would speak to us, but that we would have ears to hear, hearts to understand, and lives that we would be willing to allow you to form. It's the way of the disciple. If we're not being formed by you, We may well be believers, but are we really disciples? If we're not going in your way, uh, we may well like you, but are we really followers? Jesus, as you speak to us, um, grant to us the humility to be changed by you. Lord Jesus Christ, um, release angels from blocks of marble. Polish mirrors, Lord God and glorify your name. Amen.